Let's pray. Can we um, find our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2? And we're going to look at Mark chapter 2 again this morning. But uh, let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for all that you've done already by your Spirit, and I pray that you'd help me now as I preach to communicate your words, to encourage people, and to lift up your name, that you will be glorified in all things this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd minister to every heart this morning through what I say. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, for those of you that are visiting, we're doing a series called A Portrait of Jesus, where we're looking at who Jesus is and trying to understand how Mark sees him. And hopefully out of that, we, we will get to live our lives in a, in a, in a way that points people to Christ and, and uh, lifts up the name of Jesus. That's really what we're trying to do. And last um, time, um, we had a wonderful message encouraging us to be on a mission uh, and uh, that the, as the paralytic was brought to Jesus, the friends of Jesus did all that they, uh, the friends of the paralytic did all that they could to ensure that he could get to Jesus and um, that Jesus could touch him. And the challenge out of that message was for all of us to do the same, to see how we could bring our friends and families towards the living Christ so that he can work in their lives. And the encouragement was that we would do that this week and last week, and I really trust that you have found courage in your life to share Jesus with someone, um, and it would be great to hear some testimonies of how people did that, all right? We're all on a mission, and we're all on a mission to see people come to Christ. And so I'd like to uh, kind of take some things out of what was shared last time and connect it into what I'd like to um, share today, which is basically the calling of Levi, which is the second half of chapter 2. But um, right at the beginning of this chapter already, we're seeing two things. We're seeing the story of the healing of the paralytic and then the calling of Matthew as a disciple. And those two incidents provoke hatred against Jesus. And Mark is trying to help us to see that. He's trying to help us to see right from chapter 2 that there's a case being built against Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees, and there's a reason for that happening, and he points that out um, as we go through this chapter. And now we're going to see, as we move on on our journey, that there are a number of charges that the scribes and Pharisees bring against Jesus of blasphemy. And in verse 7, they say that. And then there's a criticism of the kind of people that Jesus hangs around with in verse 16. And there's also a complaint that Jesus and his disciples don't fast in the proper way, according to the scribes and Pharisees, and that they, they're breaking the laws of the Sabbath. And this leads to a sustained hatred of Jesus. And um, that's what Mark is trying to get us to see, right from the early story of Jesus, that already there's this sense in the religious order of the day that is opposed to Jesus, and they're trying to catch him out and, um, and trap him. And that's what Mark is anxious for us to see. Now, l- l- last time um, when we l- looked at the story, um, I want to just point this out. Um, Capernaum was the place that Jesus ministered mostly out of, um, and it enjoyed much of his ministry. It enjoyed much of his preaching and much of his of, of the miracles that um, the, the people saw. And it was stay, the place that he stayed after he, le- he left Nazareth. Um, the, the thing I want us to see, though, is, is this, that Jesus reserved some of his harshest criticism for Capernaum, outside of, of um, Jerusalem. 
And if we read in, in Matthew chapter 11, it says, he says of this, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For the mighty works done in you, if they had been done in Sodom, would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more terrible on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying to this town where he's preached perfectly, where he's done miracles, and where he's um, seen amazing, the people have seen amazing things, that their heart was still hard towards him as the living Christ. They saw the miracles, they heard the preaching, and yet it didn't change them. They remained hard to the gospel. And so he, in, in a very strong way, is condemning this town and saying, there's something wrong that you heard the gospel and you didn't respond to it. And so I want to encourage you this morning that we, we learn from that example that, and we never presume in our lives that we will see people saved if we just faithfully preach the gospel. It's not inevitable that people will get saved. It's not inevitable that communities will be transformed if they simply hear the gospel preached. We forget the amazing power of unbelief. We forget the hardness of people's hearts and their enmity towards God, their anger against God. We forget those things in our culture, and we forget them in, uh, to our peril. There were people in the city of Capernaum that heard faultless preaching from Jesus, the greatest preacher ever, and they, they witnessed amazing miracles where He transforms people's lives before their very eyes, and yet they remained dead in their sin. They remained hard to the Word of God. And I, I love J.C. Ryle. He's an old preacher. Probably never heard of him, but he says this, the same fire of the Holy Spirit that melts some hearts seems to harden others like a kiln over an oven clay pot. What is he saying? That's a, what Paul said. To some, we are the fragrance of life, to those being saved, and to others, the fragrance of death. Paul, he's saying here that something, when you hear the gospel preached regularly and you hear uh, the, the good news preached, and yet you choose to harden your heart to that message, that becomes an incredibly dangerous place. And that's what Jesus is saying of Capernaum. And so I want to encourage us, as we kind of reflect on our own lives, let's us never walk in that path. I was reading Hebrews again this week, and um, the encouragement of Hebrews is this. If today you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. So I want to encourage you this morning, my prayers for all of us, for those of you that are perhaps visiting and those that are regularly here, that if today you hear the voice of God speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Let God speak to you. Let it find a good, soft soil that can produce fruit in your life. That's the first thing that I want to just say out of um, uh, the story of Capernaum and what we looked at last time. And then secondly, I just do want to just tie it into what Jesus says about forgiveness of sins, because that's the thing that he gets criticized for most severely in that portion. And it's, it's interesting to me that worldly religious people really dislike Jesus. Um, here we have the story that, that was so wonderfully described last time of this outstanding miracle where, where the friends of the paralytic bring this man to Jesus and lower him through the roof. And it's the only way that they can get him to Jesus. And notice Jesus doesn't ask what's wrong with the man. He doesn't say what kind of sickness it is. And often people ask the question of Jesus, you know, how, how, who, who, whose faith heals someone? 
And for me, the answer is anyone's faith. Isn't that true? Because uh, it might be the sick person. It might be the people praying. It might be the person themselves. It might be the friends that bring the sick person to, to Jesus. All the possibilities. And Jesus wants to move. And Jesus doesn't say much about this, the sickness. He simply says, your sins are forgiven. He simply says this very plain statement. And it might seem an odd way to bring healing into someone's life, but I did want to point this out because I feel that in the church today, there are still people that think like this, and it's not what God has for us in our lives. You see, the Jews and Jewish theology connected sickness with sin. And if you were sick, it was because you had not been forgiven sin. And how do I know that? Well, if you read, remember the story of Job. He has these friends that um, are criticizing him, and his, uh, one of his friends, Eliphaz, says this, Who is innocent that has ever perished? In other words, he's saying that if there's something in your life that is out of alignment, if you are sick, it must be because you have sinned. This was part of, of Jewish theology. In fact, the rabbis had this saying where they said, There's no sick man healed of his sickness until all of his sins have been forgiven. So Jewish theology connected sickness and suffering with unforgiveness, with sin. There must be something wrong with you if you are sick. How many people have not heard that in the church? I've heard that many, many times. If you just do the right thing, you will not get sick. If you just pray enough and give your tithe, you will always be blessed. Have you ever heard this kind of theology? It's not the theology of the Bible. And here Jesus shows in a very powerful way. He demonstrates in a powerful way, and he breaks that kind of thinking forever. So he consciously is taking on the theology of the, um, the, the rabbis, and in a head-on practical demonstration, he is dealing with that. And because he deals with it in such a radical way, they hate him for it. So basically, Jesus is saying to this man, this paralytic who's been like that for however long, he's saying, my son, God is not angry with you. There's nothing that you've done in your life that makes you sick, in, that has caused the sickness. God is smiling on you, and I want you to know your sins are forgiven. And one sentence, Jesus is dealing with the burden and the terror of feeling cut off from God, and he heals the man of his paralysis instantly. My friends, that is such good news for you, and that is such good news for me. The first thing, and I want you to hear this this morning, if you know Jesus or if you don't know Jesus, if you're saved or if you're not saved, Jesus says to you this morning, my son, my daughter, my Father in heaven is not angry with you. Come home to Him. Don't be afraid. Your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing God wants us to hear this morning. Come home as a son and a daughter. Come home to me. Your sins are forgiven. And see, these words so offend religious people. And they're so offended the scribes and the Pharisees. Why is that? Because Jesus is acting as if he is God. And Michael pointed this out so wonderfully last time. 
He's making this absolute statement. Your sins are forgiven as if he is the one that is doing the forgiving. And the scribes and Pharisees cannot get their heads around that. Here's the point. Because Jesus had done these supernatural things like healing the leper, he had attracted the attention of the Jewish authorities, and the Sanhedrin was the supreme Jewish court. It was the highest authority in, in the Jewish um, community, and one of its functions was to guard orthodoxy, that people didn't get out of line. And uh, anyone who brought fa fa false claims, uh, those were dealt with with the Sanhedrin. And so it's like, as Michael pointed out, it's like they've been scouting for Jesus to try and catch him out because they, they wanted to you know, bring him into line. They didn't want him to say things that threatened their orthodox way of thinking. And so when Jesus said, when they heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, it comes as a shattering, mind-bending shock to the, the, the Sanhedrin because their belief essentially was only God could forgive sin. For any human being to claim that was blasphemy, and under their law was penalty of death by stoning, Leviticus 24, 16. And Jesus knows this. Why do I know that? Because the Scripture says there, it says, He perceived what was happening in their hearts. He knew they were trying to trap Him. He knew they had come to see if they could catch Him out. And Jesus, it says, Jesus perceived in their spirits, and that, that they were questioning him within themselves. And I've met these kind of people in my life. There are certain kind of people that have a critical spirit, and they use argument and logic in order to criticize you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever met people like that? They are absolutely right about what they are saying, and there's a logic and argument, but the real heart is to criticize and to undo something on the inside of you. And so these Pharisees, they're looking for a logical way to criticize Jesus. And Jesus knows. <laughs> he knows what's going on inside their hearts. And a good question is to ask is, how does he know that? Does he know it because he has kind of wisdom that we don't have? No, I think it, Jesus knows it simply because he has wisdom from heaven. That he asks his father what his father wants to do, and his father tells him. And he knows that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that you might know times in your life where you have experienced that, where you just know on the inside of yourself, you can, you can be begin to discern there's something happening here, and I know what it is in this, in this conversation. I know what it is. And I'm not talking about being suspicious of people. That's an ugly thing, to be suspicious of people. I'm talking about a revelation that comes by the Holy Spirit, and you just know, yep, I know what's going on here. Have you ever experienced that? There's this kind of sense of the Holy Spirit speaking to you and showing you something of what's going on in someone else's heart. And so Jesus is laying down a challenge here to these scribes and Pharisees. He takes them head on in their belief that sin and sickness were connected. Because, you know, you are sick because you've sinned. Jesus takes that head on and he simply says this thing, your sins are forgiven. And then he connects and he says, well, what's easier for me to say, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? And here's the crunch. Here's, here's what Michael pointed out last time, which I'd just like to highlight again. He's saying, you know, it's impossible to prove this thing of your sins are forgiven. How do you demonstrate that that's true? You, it's impossible to know that. But it's possible to check this claim out, get up and walk. And if the person gets up and walk there and there, you've got, you've got proof of the truth of what they're saying. And so Jesus is in effect saying, 
You say that I have no right to forgive sins. You, you hold as a matter of your belief, your theology, that this man is ill because he is a sinner and that he cannot be cured until he's forgiven. That's what Jesus is really saying in between the lines to the Pharisees. And so he says, okay, here we go. Get up and walk. And he demonstrates the power of the forgiveness that we all have with the Father as he heals the man. It's incredible. And you and I can know that power of forgiveness in our own lives. Where Jesus says the same thing to you and to me. And so basically Jesus is saying, he's caught these guys out at their own game. He's demonstrated through what he does. He's caught them out in their own stated belief. The man could not be cured unless he was forgiven. And because he was cured, he must be forgiven. And Jesus must have left them baffled. He must have also left them really angry. And they, we know that because from that moment forward, they began to plot to kill him. And this is what religion does. Religious people are always angry and they're always frustrated with other people. They do not fit in to their little box. That's what religion does. And so they knew that they would have to deal with Jesus because their orthodoxy was being shattered and destroyed. And by this single, single little incident here was like Jesus signed his own death warrants and began the process of moving towards the cross for you and for me. And he knew that. And so we can think about this thing of Jesus forgiving sins in a number of ways. There's three ways I can think of. Uh, there possibly might be more. Um, First of all, we could think of it like this, that Jesus is uh, simply conveying God's forgiveness to this man. Uh, this is what I mean. You remember the story of David in the Old Testament when, da when he's conf Nathan confronts him and says, you've sinned. He repents and confesses his sin, and Nathan says this to him. He says in uh, 2 Samuel 12, the Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. In other words, Nathan wasn't doing the forgiving. He was simply conveying to David that forgiveness was his and that God had forgiven him. So we could say that this is what Jesus was doing to this man, simply conveying to him something that God had already done. That's certainly true, but I don't think it reflects the fullness of the story as we read on. Um, secondly, we could say that Jesus was acting as God's representative. In other words, if you have in your life a power of attorney in your life for someone to sign legal documents, you are saying to that person, I'm giving you my authority and you can act on my behalf. We could take it that Jesus was doing the same thing for God, that he had a delegated power and authority uh, that he was demonstrating through him. But there's a third sense, that's true, but there's a third sense and the third way that I think we should see this portion, and this is what I believe we're seeing here. The whole essence of Jesus' life, who he was, how he lived, demonstrated a whole new attitude of God the Father towards us, as his sons and daughters, that Jesus wanted us to see. Jesus brought to humanity and brought that to us and showed really how God was with us. He literally brought down forgiveness. He literally brought it down to earth, and he de demonstrated that God, our Father in heaven, wants us to enjoy that forgiveness and that grace. And without Jesus ever coming, we would never have known that in the way that Jesus demonstrates it. He's showing us a whole new way of seeing God as our Father. And so 
In effect, when Jesus says, um, to, he speaks to the man, he's saying, I'm telling you here now that you are forgiven. He's showing this perfect attitude that God has towards all of us. All of us as his people saying, I forgive you. I love you. I accept you just as you are. And so perhaps there's someone here this morning that needs to hear the voice of God saying that over your lives. I forgive you. He's not unsmiling. He's not stern. He's not judgmental. He loves you just as you are, and he wants you to know that this morning he's bringing forgiveness to your life. Amen? And so that's just briefly to kind of has a springboard to, to what I want to say this morning. And really, what I want to say this morning is that Jesus is a friend to every sinner. Jesus is a friend to every sinner. So if we can read on in verse 13, it says this again. It says, Jesus went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting on the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a doctor, but only those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow. Jesus is an incredibly brave man, isn't he? <laughs> uh, we, we like to think Jesus was really polite and always loving. He was always loving, but uh, not always polite. Here he takes them on again. Boof. He's kind of showing in a very direct way why he had come and why, why he... Um, was ministering in the way that he was. And so here, Jesus is criticized again by the religious order of the day because he was a friend to those that everybody else hated. He was a friend to the marginalized. He was a friend to those on the periphery of society that other people just did not like and did not want to get on with. And so here we see uh, the story of Levi. He has this radical conversion and he follows Jesus um, and as the doors of the synagogue are being closed to Jesus inexorably in because of the attitude of the scribes and, of, and Pharisees, we see him walking by the side of the, of the ocean and teaching by the lakeside. And that really was a common way of, for rabbis to teach. They simply went about their daily business, and the disciples followed them and asked questions. And here we meet this guy called Levi. Um, and remember, Palestine was uh, divided up, and Judea was a Roman province. And uh, Galilee was ruled by a guy called Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. And Capernaum was the first major town in that region. And by nature, it was a frontier town where goods went in and out of. And because of that, it was a custom center. It's where goods came in, and so the, the goods were taxed, and they were exported again. And so taxes had to be paid in Capernaum as a regional center, and that's where they were collected. And so that's why there's this guy called Levi there, who's... Um, uh, a hated man. He's not working for the Romans like Zacchaeus did. Remember, Zacchaeus worked directly for the Romans. He's working for Herod Antipas. He's working for the governor, but he's still a hated tax collector. Now, often we know this to be true. People who collect tax in a community are never popular, are they? Uh, tax collectors, no one likes tax collectors. 
but the thing was here that in, the, in, the, in these times, people didn't really know how much tax they should be paying, and so tax collectors used that to their advantage, and they exploited people mercilessly. And they lined their own pockets with people's money that they shouldn't have had for themselves. You know, I was reading a, this. There was a Greek writer called Lucian, and he said this. He said he ranks tax collectors along with adulterers. He said tax collectors, adulterers, flatterers, and sycophants. Do you know what a sycophant is? A sycophant is someone that always curries to favor with you and says the right thing and flatters you because they want some, something from you. That's what a sycophant is like. And uh, do you remember Uriah Heep? Do you, know, do you remember Charles Dickens? Uriah Heep is that kind of character who's always wringing his hands and saying, oh, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? He's kind of currying favor with everybody. That's a sycophant. And this Greek writer says tax collectors are like that. They're flatterers. They're adulter- they like adulterers. They, so people didn't like tax collectors, right? And yet this tax collector gets radically saved. I'd like you to notice this. Of all the disciples... Matthew really, the tax collector, really gave up everything to follow Jesus. He really did. Why do I say that? Well, Peter, Andrew, and James, John, they could have gone back to their boats. It's not like when they followed Jesus, they burned their boats. Their boats were still in the harbor, and if it didn't work out with Jesus, they could go back to their day job, right? They could. Matthew, tax collector. I mean, Levi, yes, sorry. Levi, the moment he follows Jesus, he is burning all of his bridges, it cost him everything to follow Jesus. He could, could not go back to being a tax collector once he came to Christ. With one decision, he puts himself out of a job forever. He staked everything in following Jesus. Everything. When I was thinking about that, I thought about my own life. How often I hedge my bets. Yeah, you ever hedge your bets? If it doesn't work out, I've got a plan B. These guys, they staked everything. Levi staked everything on following Jesus. Trusted him completely with his life. I want to encourage you. How are we? Are we trusting Jesus completely with our lives? Are we following him wholeheartedly? Or are we hedging our bets? Kind of got a plan B. If it doesn't work out with Jesus. Third thing I'd like us to see out of this portion it's that Jesus says he's come for the sick. And pretty soon Jesus is hanging out with Levi's friends, who also happen to be sinners and tax collectors. They are the fringe of society that do not follow the religious rules and regulations of the day. And really at heart, the first disciples of Jesus were those that rejected the religious system. They were on the outside of that. And it's very interesting to me because the word here, the Greek word used here for sinner, can be applied in two ways. Those that broke the moral code, but also those that broke the scribal law of the Pharisees were also considered sinners in the same way. What does it mean? It means that for the Jews, those that committed adultery were as sinful as those that ate pork. Yeah? The moral code, broken, and the scribal code. So in other words, if you committed murder, it was seen in the same way as if you didn't wash your hands properly according to religious custom. Now, those, these, these things are very important to, to the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so when it talks about sinners, it's like including all of that. So if you, if you didn't wash your hands properly, you were a sinner in the same way as someone who committed adultery, according to Jewish 
law. And so the kind of people that Jesus chose right at the beginning, those that he chose to invest in and train in, he attracted ordinary people that didn't fit into the religious system, that didn't fit into the religious order of the day and the upper echelons of society. And that was such a shock to the Pharisees. They think a good religious leader shouldn't be friends with people like that. And so in verse 17, when he says this, Jesus says, it's not the well that needs a doctor, it's the sick that needs a doctor. It sounds like he's, he's at first, it sounds like Jesus is saying that if you're a good, solid, upstanding citizen, he hasn't come for you. But I don't think Jesus is saying that at all. It's not the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, he's saying, and he says to us, all of us here this morning, he's saying, I can do nothing for people that think themselves so good that they don't need anything done for them. That's what Jesus is saying. The very people that Jesus can do everything for are those that know they need Jesus because something in their life is broken and needs a cure. So, if you have this morning, and you know that there's something in your life that needs Jesus' touch, I want to say to you, great, then Jesus can do much for you. But if you have this morning... And you think, well, I'm okay. I'm not really in need of anything from Jesus. I want to say to you quite kindly, as plainly as I can, then Jesus can do nothing for you. Because you're gonna, you've determined that you can do everything for yourself. And you see, that's the point. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not, this, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor and those that know that they are not well. So I want to encourage you. Keep your heart open to Jesus. Let him do what only he can do. We can do much in our own strength, but Jesus comes to do what we cannot do in our own strength. And that's what the gospel really is. And so Jesus deliberately and consciously focuses on the needs of the neediest kind of people. Those, he says, that are sick. Those are the ones that I've come for. Lastly, it's, a, it's interesting to me that religious people don't like God being friendly. Do you notice that? Religious people don't like God being friendly. Why? Because God has the habit of breaking down cliques and little groups of people and helping us to make new friends. See? Religion says you're bounded by your tribe, by your set. I'm only going to be, I'm only going to be friends with the same kind of people that are like me because I'm righteous and I'm upstanding and I do all the right things and I follow the moral code and, and that's who I am. And I'm only going to hang around with those kind of people. And Jesus says exactly the opposite, doesn't he? And he breaks that down, and he says, I've come for those outside of the religious system. I've come for those that are sinners and know that they are sinners and know that they are sick and that they need a doctor. So Jesus doesn't get, in his ministry, remember, he doesn't get opposition from tax collectors. He doesn't get opposition from prostitutes. He doesn't get op opposition out of those whose job it was to squeeze as much money out of people as they could. He didn't get opposition from those outside of the religious order of the day who didn't follow the rules of the scribes and the Pharisees. He experienced opposition from God's people who were waiting for Messiah to come. They were the ones that opposed him the most because he just didn't fit in to their religious idea of how things should be. So I close with this. Jesus is a friendly Savior. He's a smiling Savior who points us to a happy Father in heaven. He doesn't try and draw attention to himself. He doesn't be, he's not pretentious in any way. Jesus combines 
humility with the greatest authority and the sweetest friendship with everyone who will open their hearts towards Him. Jesus is a friendly Savior, and He's still a friendly Savior. And so I would say to all of you this morning, as I say to myself, today, perhaps you, you hear that and you don't know Jesus, and your heart is heavy, and you're feeling like there's something broken on the inside, and you need a cure. I want to say to you today, Jesus is here. He's smiling on you. He wants to heal you. You can know forgiveness. You can know restoration. Will you open your heart? Will you come to him so he can touch your life and transform you? He is the friendly Savior who has always been a friend to the sick. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for that uh, reminder of, uh, that Michael gave us a couple of weeks ago about we are on a mission together, taking this wonderful gospel out into the world and doing all that we can to bring our friends and family to know you as the living Christ. Help us to understand, too, Lord, that that means that you've come for the marginalized. You've come for those that are outside the religious order of the day. You've come for those that are other people don't like who don't fit in, who don't conform. You've come for those as well. You've come for those that are sick, those that need a doctor. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you would motivate us with that as well, that as we live our lives, we, we would go outside of our, our comfort zone, that we would go outside of what we feel comfortable to draw as many as we can to Christ. Help us to be on that mission as well. Help us. Lord, we need the power of your Spirit. We need you to help us to do that. And so I pray, Lord, as we, we think about that, that you would bring revelation to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would live courageous lives, that we would not give in to those that would push us into a, a box and say, unless you're inside this box, you can't please God. Lord, you came and you broke the box open completely, and you showed a different way. You showed a different father that we would have never known unless you had demonstrated it through your life. With one word, you forgave sin and healed. And Lord, we, you can do that for our lives and for each one of us. And so Lord, I pray for my friends here in this church. I thank you for every single family. Thank you for those that are not, not here today. And God, I pray that you'd live us, help us to live courageously by the power of your Spirit, that we truly would bring the good news that there's a doctor for the sick. His name is Jesus. He wants to heal as we open our hearts to him. And Lord, I pray that you'd increasingly bring us all into a place of wholeness and healing that demonstrates your kingdom, that we can live for you, and that much glory would come to you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, I pray. Everyone says, Amen.